0: That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S code super24.
1: Thank you for joining us on Community Focus, where we look at the issues that matter in South Florida and the people and organizations that are making a difference. We've been talking a lot about diversity this year in response to what seems like a fracturing of American society. You know, we've always taken pride in being the melting pot of people from different backgrounds, especially here in South Florida. But we're also finding there are some great disparities in access to healthcare, economic stability, and voting rights for different communities. Now, I believe the best way to bring people together is to introduce them to each other and share their stories and let people walk in each other's shoes as a way of bridging gaps in understanding. So joining us today to talk about the need for specified mental health. Based on cultural background, I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Isaac Torgeman, a faculty member at Albisu University in Doral. This is the school that specializes in psychology and is setting records for graduating female Hispanics with doctorates in psychology. Dr. Torgeman, thank you for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here.
1: You have an incredible background in psychology, psychopharmacology, and neurology. Is it possible to sum it up in like 30 seconds, you know, where you got all these degrees? <laughs> uh, sure.
2: So um, I have a PhD in clinical psychology with a specialized training in neuropsychology, which is basically the relationship between the brain and behavior. And typically what I do is assess patients that have a history of acquired brain injuries, dementia, or any neurological dysfunction. I attained that degree at Nova Southeastern University. And while attaining that degree, I also concurrently uh, completed a master's in psychopharmacology, which is basically the clinical practice of pharmacology with a neurological and psychiatric population. So focusing specifically on those types of medications.
1: So you can pretty much deal with almost any sort of psychiatric need that someone might have.
2: Um, Well, we are trained generally. Uh, My specialty is brain injury. So I'm a certified brain injury specialist. And that's the majority of the patients I see are patients with concussions, head injuries and things like that, as well as stroke. But we are trained generally. So I do see patients that do present with uh, psychiatric syndromes and so forth.
1: Okay. I am definitely going to want to talk to you again about the brain injuries, um, that's an issue we've been seeing more and more with football players, the wrestlers, you know, who get the TBI and they're ending up committing suicide, which has become almost, you know, its own mini pandemic within the pandemic. But today we want to focus again on the diversity. It, you have a phrase called cultural competence. What is that and how does it apply to health care and mental health services?
2: So cultural competence is basically the ability to understand, appreciate, and interact with people from cultures or belief systems different from our own. So essentially, your ability to interact with someone who's different from you. And it's something very vital in healthcare. The ability to treat patients across different cultural groups is paramount. So in order to provide the best services possible, it is important to be a culturally competent clinician.
1: What are some of the cultural factors that may impact mental health care, both generally and specifically to the Hispanic community?
2: A very good question. So to start with, uh, different ethnic and cultural groups have different views about healthcare in general and seeking treatment. And this becomes most pronounced in mental health, where there's still a significant amount of stigma and ambiguity. And mental health can actually be seen as a sign of weakness or, in some cultures, malfeasance, meaning that the person has done something wrong that warrants the symptoms. In Hispanic populations, this also rings true, where a lot of individuals will be very covert or keep their symptoms hidden because of the stigma attached to experiencing anything from depression, anxiety, to other disorders within psychiatry. So getting these patients to come in and actually seek treatment is quite a challenge. Now, once they come in, Communication is paramount. So basic nonverbal aspects of communication now come to the forefront. So things like personal space, I know something that has uh, been quite a challenge during these last couple of years, but there is quite a significant variability across multiple cultures, and Hispanic individuals are known to have a much smaller parameter for personal space, even having greetings in which they hug and and kiss one another on the cheek. Uh, This can be interpreted quite differently across multiple cultures, where in some cultures, personal space is quite more significant and more reserved. Also, eye contact, the way that uh, the communication's paced. I know in some cultures, and myself being of Hispanic background, I know sometimes you'll ask a, a question to get a direct answer, and the response is a story. And that's very, very uh, typical to communicate.
1: Okay. I mean, how much of a difference does it make to a patient in therapy to walk in and see a doctor that looks like them and reflects their culture?
2: Well, uh, studies have shown that it is beneficial. So individuals who share ethnic backgrounds are more likely to have uh, similar cultural backgrounds and possess similar knowledge and skills, so um, it makes it easier to communicate. So uh, some studies have shown that individuals who are engaged with someone of a similar background may stay longer in treatment lower levels of attrition, and lower levels of over-pathologizing individuals, essentially misdiagnosing what are cultural norms.
1: Mm. Is it possible to teach someone to be culturally competent. So we don't end up with a situation where Hispanic people will only go to a Hispanic doctor and black people only go to a black doctor and white people only go to a white doctor. How do we bring the cultures together? Can you teach at Albisu someone to be culturally competent so that they can bridge that gap between the culture differences?
2: Well, um, as a professor, I do believe that the great equalizer is education, and yes, I do believe that this is something that uh, to a certain extent can definitely be taught. At Albiza University, uh, cultural competence is at the forefront, and, and it's embedded in our curriculum, primarily in the doctoral program. As part of being an APA-certified program, we do have classes in cultural competence. I specifically teach one on assessing individuals across multiple cultural contexts, but I actually believe that the strength of the program is outside of the classroom where students get to experience a multicultural population and do rotations in clinics out in the community and where they see individuals from multiple cultural backgrounds and across different groups of society, including underserved individuals. So it's that hands-on experience that really sets it apart.
1: And is that a normal part of the training to prepare a graduate to provide mental health care before they earn their degree?
2: Uh, Well, in our program, definitely, but I do think it is the trend across different schools and programs. I mean, there's no denying that the world is becoming more diverse as people are communicating more readily and interacting with one another more readily. Again, barring the last couple of years of quarantine and whatnot. So becoming more educated on diversity and cultural implications is paramount. Otherwise, we're just simply underserving the population.
1: It sounds like when, when you talk about cultural competence and understanding other cultural backgrounds, how can we expand this to the greater community so there's understanding between the average person in addition to the understanding between a patient and a therapist?
2: Well, advocacy is a big part of it. I teach my students that treating the patient in the hospital room or in the clinic is just a small part of what we do. It's communicating with the community at large. At our school, we've held events where we've invited people to come and be exposed to this information. I know that you have been involved with the Walk to End Alzheimer's and we've actually held events at our school to bring in individuals from the community to talk about and educate on such matters and holding events in regards to cultural norms and educating individuals about such aspects is the best way to go around. Um, maybe even going into the school system and educating individuals, you know, students that are younger, and more eager to learn is one of the best approaches. But just providing information and access, I think, is the best way to go about it.
1: And how can people get that information? Uh, you know, is someone who's not a student currently at Albisu come to these events that you hold?
2: Well, a lot of our events are open to the community. Again, I I do qualify that uh, quarantine in the last couple of years has hindered that. But as things begin to open up, we do host events that we invite the community and provide them access to information that otherwise may not be available where they can hear professionals that are experts on the topic speak on these matters.
1: And where would someone get information about these events? And where would someone get information if they're now really interested in becoming a therapist, a psychologist or a psychiatrist and getting that degree from Albisu?
2: Well, the best way is to contact our school directly. If you are interested in uh, pursuing a degree in psychology and mental health, contacting our university and getting more information about it. We have a great admissions program that is very eager to talk to those that are interested in a one-on-one basis. Uh, as far as for the general community, our website and our social media is pretty active, and there's uh, access to information there as well.
1: And that's albisu.edu? Yes. Okay. What can you say to people to kind of help them open their minds to this concept of cultural competence and look at people and take in the possibility that their background is different and that's why they behave the way they do? Kind of keep that in mind when we're just going about our everyday work to help break down some of the barriers between cultures.
2: Well, um, like I said, I think education is the the unifying factor. You made reference to my background in neuroanatomy and so forth. And organically speaking, there is quite a bit of similarities across individual brains. I mean, it's built into our anatomy to be able to connect to others. But oftentimes, those similarities are overshadowed by what tend to be differences that are observed. I think by communicating to individuals and talking about some of these cultural norms, we're able to connect on a much easier manner and can have significant implications, not just for healthcare but for society uh, as a whole.
1: I think it's phenomenal that, you know, you're so conscious of this concept of cultural competence. And I agree with you that education is the key and exposure to different cultures. You know, I always think when people say, no, we don't want, you know, foreigners coming here. I think, well, when you go to a foreign country on vacation, you're excited and you think that the cultural norms there are wonderful. But then when you're here, you're like, no, 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 no. And I try and put it in that context that it's no different whether it's here or there. You know, people who bring differences to the community are just enlarging our world experience and making us more interesting people. You know, when we have exposure to different cultures, it's exciting is the way I see it. And I wish everyone could see it that way. So is there anything else you would want us to know about this and about the programs at Albisu?
2: Well, I very much agree with what you stated, and I do think that notion of an in-group, out-group is often a consequence of lack of exposure. Uh, So by having that access to information and that intermingling of the cultures, I do think it enriches us uh, on many levels. As far as the university, uh, again, it is a primary goal in educating clinicians that are culturally competent, but also becoming ambassadors for the field and for cultural competence. So, not just being one-dimensional, but being individuals that propagate it uh, even further. And I think that's something that we can all take on on an individual basis uh, to champion those things that we are passionate about and to see them through.
1: Well, there we have our call to action. Let's open our minds. Let's. Ed- educate ourselves and let's intermingle our cultures. You know, how many weeks out of the year are there festivals, you know, for every different background we have in South Florida and go to them. You know, you'll have a great time. You'll meet new people and you may learn things that you didn't know and find that you're really drawn to other cultures as well you know, really a way to bring our diverse cultures together. And I appreciate what you're doing at Abisu. Will you come back and talk to us about this issue of brain injuries and neuropsychology?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, that is definitely something I'm very passionate about. And um, yes, I'd be very much interested to talk about that further.
1: All right. I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Dr. Isaac Torgeman from Albisu University. Again, it's albisu.edu. That's A-L-B-I-Z-U dot E-D-U. Thank you, Dr. Torgeman.
2: Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Who does not know about Cleveland Clinic and the amazing work they do in the healthcare industry? March is actually colorectal cancer awareness month. I happen to know several survivors myself who were treated at Cleveland Clinic, so it's really an honor to welcome Brenda Jimenez, a doctor, the vice chair of the Department of Gastroenterology, Hepatology and Nutrition at Cleveland Clinic Weston Hospital. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Jimenez.
0: Hi, Ellen. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Now, what is the connection? I'm going to start with gastroenterology, hepatology and nutrition when it comes to colorectal cancer.
0: So colorectal cancer is cancer that occurs in the colon and the rectum, and that includes just part of all of the entire area that we evaluate, which includes the colon and the rectum. So that's what we
1: study. And are there signs or symptoms that we can be aware of? You know, something that we've talked a lot about is that because of the pandemic, people stopped going to doctors and stopped getting their annual checkups. So we have a whole world of people who haven't had their colonoscopies, nor had their blood tested or anything like that. Are there other ways to recognize that something may be wrong without having gone for a screening or used there's the cola guard testing now that you can do at home or having a checkup?
0: So the first thing that we really need to talk about is that colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer in both men and women. So it's common, you know, you have a one in a 23 lifetime risk if you're a man or 1 in 25 lifetime risk if you're a woman. So you should really be on top of your screening. Initially, uh, early onset colorectal cancer does not cause any symptoms. But symptoms that we really should be monitoring and really talk to our doctors about is you know, if we have you know, any abdominal pain that doesn't go away, if you start seeing blood in the stool, that's a big kind of red flag. Sometimes there will be no symptoms. If it's a slow blood loss into the stool, you may have a low blood count and that can lead to some. Fatigue. And so things that are new, you should really talk to your doctor about. You did mention the guard that is one of the tool based testing that we have to screen for colon cancer. And that's really, you know, one of the things that we talk about uh, for colorectal cancer screening is the best test is the test that gets done. So if you're afraid of going to the hospital, if you want to do something at home, that's an option. You know, hospitals they are safe now. You know, colonoscopy is definitely another option.
1: Okay and from personal experience I will share that there is colon cancer in on my father's side of the family and when it was time I went for my first colonoscopy and it was no big deal at all. If anything, it was the preparation that people talk about where you have to go a whole day drinking only liquids that have no color in them, sleeping a lot through it, it does help. But yeah. and also it's been a while since I did that. And you know, like I said, I woke up, I didn't even know it had happened. I thought we were still waiting. Have there been Improvements in the prep and the ways that you screen, or changes in the screening methods for colon cancer?
0: So, the screening methods for colon cancer, you know, they've been available for many years. Like I said, colonoscopy, it hasn't changed. It's available. We have new tools. Um, The screening, the preparation options have changed slightly. We've also modified slightly the timing of the preparation, and also the diet can be slightly liberalized. You know, if you're an average risk person, A way to better tolerate the PrEP is what we do something called split dose. So you do part of the dose the day before and part of the dose the morning of. So you're not consuming that large volume of liquid, which is what patients really find difficult. Oh, I have to drink that whole gallon or that half a gallon in such amount of time. So that really makes it easier to do that. So that's really been, you know, much better. And in addition to making it easier for the patient, you will be cleaner because one thing that, you know, if, I, if there's one thing I want, you know, people to remember is the closest that you take your prep to the colonoscopy, obviously within the safe time frame for anesthesia, the cleaner you're going to be. So really follow the instructions that your physician gives you at the time, you know, prior to booking your appointment.
1: Okay. And let's uh, go back. What causes colon cancer? What's happening inside the body that leads to it?
0: So cancer starts when cells in the body start to grow out of control. Cancer in the colon and the rectum is called colorectal cancer. So they are grouped together because they have features in common. And the way cancer in the colorectum starts is just with little growth in the colon that we call polyps. Uh, Not all of the polyps are precancerous. Some are precancerous. And these are really slow growing. It takes about 5 to 10 years for them to become cancer. So they're very slow growing. That's the rationale a colonoscopy every 10 years is it because it takes a little bit longer for them to become cancer, that's when we do it. If we find a polyp, you know, then we're going to do your colonoscopy at a shorter interval. That's how it starts. Now, these polyps can be removed during colonoscopy and then we send them to a pathologist, looks at them under the microscope and they tell us what kind of polyp they have.
1: What if you have As I said, I have cancer on my father's side in my family. If you do have a genetic component, if there's cancer in your family, does that change how often you should be screened and when you should start?
0: Definitely. So family history is an important risk factor for colorectal cancer. And I'll give you an example. If a person that has no history of colorectal cancer in the family, the risk is about 6%. Once you have a first-degree relative, that can increase like three to four-fold. So we look at the age of the diagnosis, but typically if there's a family history of colon cancer, a close family relative, we're going to start younger. We're going to start at age 40 and then depending on who that person was, we're going to do the colonoscopy every, either every five years or 10 years, depending on how close that relative is. Now, you mentioned also genetics and that's a different, not familial, but genetics is if you have an underlying gene mutation that predisposes your risk of colon cancer. Uh-huh.
1: And you know, those are
0: conditions like Lynch syndrome or familial polyposis and that risk is certainly much higher than just having a family member with colon cancer. And in those patients, we do colonoscopy every year.
1: Wow. Is there something, you know, like they have the BRCA test for people to find out if they have the gene for breast cancer or ovarian cancer? Is there a test like that for colorectal cancer?
0: There is. And if you have a certain number of family members with colon cancer or very young colon cancer or a lot of polyps, then we will recommend genetic testing. So we will do testing for a specific number of genes that includes genes that increase your risk of colorectal cancer. So that's something that we can do here in the office. And you know, you answer a couple of questions and that's done pretty quickly and relatively easily with no discomfort to the
1: patient. Okay. For those general situations where someone may not have a family history of colon cancer and has no awareness of a genetic component, what are some of the other risk factors, things that any of us can do to decrease our chances of developing colorectal cancer? And on the flip side, what are the things that we are doing that are increasing our risk?
0: Yeah, so definitely, you know, one of the the major risk factors other than family history you just talked about is physical inactivity. So a sedentary lifestyle has increased the risk of cigarette smoking, obesity, and, and there are some conditions that are not in total control of the patient. For example, somebody that's had abdominal radiation or conditions like inflammatory bowel disease. Those, those will increase your risk of colon cancer. So um, there are some recommendations that we can certainly talk about and you know, to how to lower your risk of colorectal cancer. And the first one is regular screening. So make sure you're talking to your doctor about this. If you're active, you know, getting active, doing like several minutes of moderate activity weekly, it can decrease your risk for about 25%. Um, keeping your weight in the normal range, you know, limiting alcohol intake and eating a more high fiber, whole grain food will also be very beneficial in decreasing your risk of colorectal cancer.
1: So we've spent two years in lockdown and most people were not particularly active, not necessarily eating high fiber, whole grain food, because I know many of us were turning to things like ice cream and cookies to make us feel better. People were drinking more, taking more drugs, things to numb us and help us cope, not the healthiest ways. And everybody jokes about the pandemic 15 or 25. Now we seem to be coming out of the pandemic, although there is now another variant that they're looking at that may be more infectious than Omicron and possibly more severe, but it's not here yet. And I don't want to panic people, but You know, are we looking at an entire population that's now more at risk because of what's happened over the last two years?
0: Well, it will take some time for us to kind of be able to get data from that. You know, however, we do have data from, you know, more recent 1990, for example, which was surprisingly quite a few years ago. But if we look at somebody that was born in around 1990 versus somebody that was born in the 50s, they have twice the risk of colon cancer and four times the risk of rectal cancer. You know, and even though you know, the possible reasons for these are complex, there are suggestions that unhealthy diet and sedentary lifestyle may contribute. So you know, maybe fast forward 20 years and we may look at the 2020-2022 as the year where this may have changed. But it takes years for population numbers to change. And then looking at these numbers is why the recommendations to start screening colonoscopy has recently decreased from 50 to 45. So Uh I know that's something, you know, we want to look at.
1: Yeah, that's a big, big difference. What about, you know, there are with breast cancer, for example, I know the Bahamian population has a much higher risk of breast cancer. Is it similar with colon cancer where there are different ethnic groups or other populations that are more susceptible to colorectal cancer?
0: So a few years ago, the recommendations for screening for African-Americans was to start at 45. Now that's changed currently for all of the average risk population, but African-Americans were certainly at higher risk when compared to the non-Hispanic whites and uh, other populations in the U.S. So that is one population that is a little bit at a higher risk.
1: Okay. Let's talk about Cleveland Clinic Weston. I mentioned I have friends who are survivors of colon cancer and were treated there. You're recognized as a national leader for digestive care. What sets Cleveland Clinic and your team apart from others? I
0: would say uh, that it's just that, it's a team. So when you come to Cleveland Clinic, you have a team of physicians who are working together to provide the best patient care. Uh, And I can tell you that I have, you know, colorectal surgeon next door. I have, you know, the oncologist that, you know, I can just, they're across the hall or across the building from me. So it's just the fact that we all work together to really provide the best possible care for the patient, I think, is what really sets us apart. And it's part of the reason why I'm here, because I think we do really care for, you know, the best possible outcome for our patients.
1: What are the likely outcomes depending on when you catch colon cancer? It's very survivable, isn't it?
0: It is. It is. And that's why we advocate so strongly for colonoscopies. A colorectal cancer that's diagnosed at a very early stage, you can be cured with just a, a surgery. Even you know, even a little bit more of advanced colorectal cancer, we use a combination of surgery, you know, plus treatment with the oncologist. So it is, you know, and obviously the earlier you catch it, the more likelihood of surviving the cancer. Uh, so even if you find a colon cancer in a colonoscopy, say you're, you're showing up for your first colonoscopy and you know, and you're at the right time, you find a cancer. There's nothing outside of the colon and it's, it's treatable. It's curable.
1: So it all comes back to screening, 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 really? Yes. Okay. If someone would like to set up a screening at Cleveland Clinic Weston, how do they go about doing it?
0: So they can call our office. I'll give you the number. Sure. You can call our office. You can call 877-463-2010. You can get a referral from your primary care to have us set up a colonoscopy for you, and uh, and we'll take care of it.
1: Okay. And if you want any other information about everything that Cleveland Clinic Florida does, just visit clevelandclinicflorida.org slash colorectal or stopit.org if you want to see everything else, <laughs> clevelandclinicflorida.org. Dr. Jimenez, is there anything else that you want our audience to know about colorectal cancer during Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month?
0: I definitely want you to remember colorectal cancer is preventable, it's treatable and beatable. So make sure you get your screening on time. Also, make sure you know your family history so that, you know, the timing of the screening is done appropriately.
1: I like those phrases, preventable, treatable, beatable. Let's go for it. Schedule your screening. Dr. Brenda Jimenez from Cleveland Clinic Weston Hospital, thank you so much for your time and your knowledge. This, I think, will open a lot of eyes and hopefully get people making those appointments. Uh, Appreciate what you do. Thank you very much for having me, Alan. Nice to meet you. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for listening to Community Focus this morning. If you have questions about the program or would like to suggest a topic, please feel free to email me at ellen.jaffe, J-A-2-F-1-E at cmg.com. Join us again next Sunday for a new edition of Community Focus. Have a great day. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles.